SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed in the podcast are individual opinions and might not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show 78 with guest Pamela Hoot. Folks, Pam is a program manager in Azure Data based in Redmond, USA. Pam's been with Microsoft since 2006 and is currently responsible for program management of database engine features for in-market and vNext versions of SQL Server, with a special focus on the storage engine area. She's passionate about SQL Server performance and is focused on performance tuning and optimization, particularly from the developer perspective throughout her career. Pam is a SQL Server Master at 2008 MCM with over 20 years of experience working with SQL Server. And together with Pedro Lopez, she's the author of Learn T-SQL Querying, released in May 2019. So welcome, Pam. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. Glad to be here. Yeah, awesome. And so listen, what I'll get everyone to do is just tell us, look, how do you come to be involved with SQL Server at all? Sure, that's a interesting journey for me. Um, I was a computer science major and when I graduated in the late 90s, I was fancying myself going to be some sort of an application developer. And um, I, my first job out of college was at Digital and I was a consultant. And it was uh, one of those things where they kind of throw a book at you and say, go learn this. And it was mm. a SQL Server book. <laughs> oh, wow. So, yeah, I, I learned SQL Server and I was, I, my first project was like C++ and SQL Server, mm -hmm. doing application development. And then um, I just became that person who knew SQL Server yeah. on the team. <laughs> and so... Yeah, look, a lot of development teams have exactly that. You have uh, a team of people that grow up and then somebody takes, takes on the data things. Yep, exactly. So then every project that came up that had a data component, I got assigned to that. And I fought it for a little while. I was like, I want to be a developer. I'm not a DBA. <laughs> but mm. then, you know, the dot-com bubble burst and um, developers were a dime a dozen, but people who knew SQL Server were not. So Yeah, exactly. The rest is history. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I think it's been a wonderful product to be involved with over the years. You, you know exactly the same thing I'm talking about. The, um, I've seen so many other things come and go, but I think skills in around SQL Server and in particular just around SQL itself uh, seem, seem to be uh, something that sustains over time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no matter what business you're in, uh, you're generating data and you need to manage that data and maintain that data. And um, now, I mean, getting insights from that data is in, an invaluable part of your business. And so it's, it's essential to have um, people to take care of that data for you and to turn it into valuable mm. insights. So I, I do think it's one of those things that uh, even in a future where everything's automated and, and, and yeah. you know, things just magically happen, there's always going to be data. Yeah, 
Okay, so now from that, how did you come to then join Microsoft? Yeah, so um, I'd been a DBA at a small startup company in New York and I was looking for a change. Um, and I saw this advertisement for a premier field engineer role, um, which is our on-site support professionals. Mm -hmm. If you've never had one come on site and it just sounded like my dream job, uh, lots of travel, lots of troubleshooting, um, you know, focused on SQL server and working for Microsoft and I was totally hooked and I got that job that was back in 2006 mm -hmm. that I started with Microsoft and I was a premier field engineer for I think eight years and then um, I moved over to premier support for developers which allowed me to do SQL server work but focused with uh, developers which was has always been my passion mm. um, and then uh, you know they called me up uh, from when you know some of my friends at the Tiger team on the SQL Server Tiger team called me up and said, "Hey, we have an opening. Do you want to, you know, consider coming over to the product group?" And um, you know, at that point, I had already moved to Seattle, having anticipated that maybe someday that mm -hmm. call would come. <laughs> so yeah. I said, "Absolutely, yeah." So I've been on the product group now for for two years. Yeah. That's an excellent move. Yeah, where I first uh, should mention to people where I first came across Pam was actually at the 2008 Masters and uh, had That's Pam right. in the class at one stage. So it seems an eternity ago at this point. I know, I know, it does seem so long ago. But yeah, that was it. It was awesome. um, good times, yeah. Actually, a lot of people who were in the class were Premier Field Engineers at the time. And it would probably be useful to people just to briefly mention, like, what is the role for that? Sure. Um, so uh, the premier field engineer is um, a person who can come on site or, or do remote work um, for customers who have a premier support contract. Um, and they offer, um, it's, it's not really consulting because consulting would be like a long-term project or might be like building a new application or something. What premier field engineers do is primarily to an advisory role. So they can come in and offer training. Um, they can do architecture reviews and kind of give you a hand on, on um, doing best practices analysis. Uh, they can do something called the risk assessment program where they can analyze mm -hmm. your SQL server system and, you know, look for where you deviate from best practices and, and give you some ideas on how to, uh, you know, make your system better, changes that you might be able to make. Um, so there's a bunch of different package services they can offer. Another one that I really like to do, because again, I, I like to work with developers, is the T-SQL Patterns and Practices Review, where we actually had an automated tool um, that would analyze your stored procedures and your ad hoc uh, code if you had any and and kind of give you some pointers as to um, you know where you might be able to make changes to your code to uh, mm. to perform better in SQL Server so lots of um, lots of kind of different ways to enhance your education or just kind of give you a, a um, you know kind of the Microsoft insight on on what's going on in your environment yeah it's an interesting one from a performance point of view that uh, I see a lot of people always focusing at the lowest level in performance and I always think unless you're prepared to sort of wander a bit back up the developer stack uh, you you tend to miss the big picture 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I kind of feel the same way. That's one of the reasons why I really like working with developers because there's so much that you can do at that level before the application is released to to influence performance once you get to production. And so, mm. you know, a lot of times once you get to production, it's so hard to make those changes um, because of the, you know, the, the testing that has to go into it and, and, you know, how that code kind of gets baked into so many layers. Um, and it's hard at that point. So catching it early, is the best thing and so having uh, database developers even if you're using entity framework or some other uh, mapper where you're not really you know digging into the guts of T-SQL even there there's there's certain practices that you can use to um, you know to influence how that code's going to perform so mm. yeah I actually think it's one it is still one of the uh, the issues that comes up all the time people talk about the effectiveness of various ORMs and things and I think one of the problems I see with it, uh, apart from the obvious, you know, queries that get generated that aren't, uh, let's say, brilliant, uh, the, the <laughs> queries that come out, yeah. the, the bigger picture is that people are too disconnected from what's going on at the database level itself. And so, you know, I see people who are trying to optimize things and they'll capture a whole lot of queries. And then the question is, here's a really, really important query. It gets run all the time. And, you know, what can we do to make it quicker? But in many cases, the correct question is why are you running that query in the first place? And, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. the, the thing I'm always telling people is that the best way to scale SQL Server is stop talking to it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, uh, it it's so funny. I've, I've get dragged into customers where they've, they've got, you know, major scale problems. And they're trying to look at how you do multi-masters and this, and you know, all the most complicated stuff in the world. And yet they've got a thing where every time somebody logs on, there's 600 calls to the database. You go, um. Yep. Yeah, I know. I quite, I actually talk about one of, that's one of the anti-patterns that I've, that I've talked about in a few of my presentations. And I, the, the death by a thousand paper cuts is, is one yeah. thing that people call it. And um, I always give this analogy of, of what if you went grocery shopping um, and you didn't have a shopping cart. So you got out of your car, walked into the grocery store, got a loaf of bread, paid for the loaf of bread, walked back to your car, put it in the car, then went back into the grocery store mm -hmm. and then got the peanut butter and then paid for the peanut butter, brought that back out to your car, put it in your car, and then you went back into the grocery store. <laughs> I love that analogy. That, that's yeah. so cool. Yeah. yeah, and I was just like, can you think of how much more time that would take than if you just put everything in your shopping cart and did it in one shot? <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's truly wonderful. Yeah, because I, I I've seen the same thing over the years. You know, my, my classic example was uh, I was at a site and there was a query being run like 12,000 times a minute. And when I look at it, it's, it's like loading up a list of countries and you think, pardon? Oh, <laughs> you no, know, like, no. What on earth is going on there? And uh, and of course, the developers are completely oblivious to it, right? Sure. And, uh, and what was interesting is you think, oh, well, that should be cached. But what was interesting is they had a typo in the caching code. So every time they looked to see it, oh. they thought it wasn't there. But then, then they'd load the cache and then it'd be the same problem again next time. So, so 12,000 times a minute, they're doing that. So what I'm getting at is that if you just look at the bottom level, and you mm -hmm. see these queries and you rate them all and you go, wow, we need to make that query faster. Uh, you're yep. just completely and utterly missing the point. 
Yes, absolutely. And I've seen some situations like that working from um, our performance labs. When I was in a premier field engineering, one of the things we do is, um, is performance labs. And yeah, I mean, a lot of times these developers have just never looked at the code from the SQL server side. Hmm. They're always looking at it from the app layer, in which case, yeah, sure, we're hitting the cache, but you're right. If <laughs> you're not doing it right, you might be firing a database statement every time. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, another classic example I saw there is uh, when people are working at the object level, it's very easy to not realize what's then going on. So, mm -hmm. you know, I saw one where they've done a good job, you know, they've run off and found, they had to do some processing for members and they've run off and grabbed say 350,000 members and they pulled that back into an object. But then what they then did is iterate around the object, go one by one. And the first question they asked is, has it already been processed? And so what they do one by one is go back out to the database and, and ask it, has it been done? You know, we're all, and so they turned one query where it could have been, give me all the ones that haven't been done into right. 350,000 queries. <laughs> yeah. And, and yep. this is, this is the thing, like somebody who's dealing with a property on an object might be so removed from that to, to not mm -hmm. even get a clue what's going on. Right. And to not even know that that, that thing that they're asking for is mm. going to actually generate a database query. Yeah. yeah so that, that sort of thing. I, I think you, you can't really achieve significant change in the performance unless you've done an atrocious job of, of everything um, without getting, yeah, I think a little bit back up into the developer stack. Uh, I think that's yeah. just completely critical to the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. But there's listen, only so much you can. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, <laughs> I was no, no, just no. gonna say. I was just gonna say there's only so much you can do by tweaking knobs on the on the server. At some point, yeah. the code has to come into play. Hmm. And listen. So what I wanted to talk to you about today, though, were resumable operations in 2019. Yeah, absolutely. Some good stuff and some stuff in 2017 as well. Uh, hmm. You know, some of this was introduced in 2017. Very cool. Very cool stuff. And I think, yeah, we had a, was it a Twitter conversation? where uh, Somewhere along the way, yeah. Something like that, I don't know, where I was like, this is like the unsung hero of, <laughs> of 2019 is this so ability to do. Maybe we should start, though, with like why people are doing, you know, I suppose, index operations in the first place. So maybe we should start there. And sure, so absolutely. what's your current take on... Uh, when indexes need to be rebuilt or uh, reorganized and so on? Oh, gosh. I mean, that's such a contentious mm. question these days. <laughs> I mean, a lot of folks will that's tell you. That's why I asked it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of folks will tell you, well, you know, you've got everything's in memory in the buffer pool, and therefore you don't really need to rebuild your indexes because, you know, fragmentation's not a thing anymore. And, and you know, I guess to a certain extent that may be true. I mean, the whole point with SQL Server, I'm any question you ask with SQL Server, the answer is always, well, it depends, right? Mm. <laughs> so, exactly. you know, it depends on how much I.O. you're doing. It depends on how many updates your indexes have. It depends on how much buffer pool space you have and things like that. Um, but even if everything's in memory, um, when things get fragmented, especially if you know you're not doing sequential inserts, um, your your objects get bigger than they need to be. So, yeah. so even yeah, if this is a wonderful doing... point because yeah. Yeah, I suppose one of the things we should mention is the, the concept of fragmentation at all. So, cause there's basically two forms of that. And one is where things don't follow each other 
and the other is is lots of empty space inside the things that are there right exactly and so the things not being in order that's important when you're actually reading things from disk into memory because that's going to make your io less efficient um but let's say you have everything's in memory and you don't have to worry so much about io and that's when people are saying well why would i then rebuild my indexes and it's because of that other point you said where we have a lot of empty space because when we're inserting out of order we are moving half the rows from the existing page that we're splitting to the new page that we're adding and so you leave two half empty pages behind so you do that often enough and you're not filling your pages and so then even your logical IO is increased because you have to read more pages to find the data that you're looking for um, and so maybe if you're doing a single row lookup that's not a big deal but if you're doing any sort of range scans that's a big deal and even your single row lookups could get more expensive because your index may get deeper one level deeper so even doing a seek into an index adds one page read extra than you would have if everything was was um, you know neat and defragmented so mm. um, so there's definitely reasons to do that even if you're not worried about IO now how often you should do it I mean again that is something I couldn't possibly tell you that's your mileage may vary type of question yeah. um, you know leveraging a script like Ola Hallengren scripts um, where you can do automated um, uh, you know checks for fragmentation and things like that that's one thing we also have one on our um, Tiger toolbox, um, adaptive index defrag that Pedro Lopes uh, put together that's available. So using some kind of a smart script to detect fragmentation and things like that might be, um, you know, the way to go to figure out how often to do that. Um, but the point is, even in a world where you're not doing a whole lot of actual disk IO, you still want to be rebuilding your indexes yeah. and making sure you're cleaning them up. Yeah, one of, one of the things I've often sort of pointed out, that's right, is that if you if you have empty pages, you it just simply got to read a whole lot more data to get the same amount of data. And it's actually a, worth noting at this point too that uh, setting fill factor uh, on the core structure of the table in the first place and or the indexes is another area where you can go very wrong with that. And so, yeah, you, know, you could target it to be really full, but if you target it to be empty in the first place, you know, you can avoid splits, but oh my goodness, you can, you can make a mess. Yeah, I mean, honestly, why we have a database level fill factor setting, I will never understand because, I mean, it's just, it's so dependent on, on the indexes and how they are used to, yep. to how full you want them to be. And I've had many people ask me, well, what, what's, what's the default fill factor? What should it be? And I was like, there shouldn't be a default. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you should look at the index, how it's used over time, how it's being fragmented, and then adjust accordingly. But yeah, if, mm. if you start with I, your index percent full, then <laughs> I see applications that do that though, right? So like, uh, even say something like SharePoint, where they used to set it to seventy percent for everything, straight out yeah. of the box, and you go, whoa. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that it's because they did some analysis and decided that that was the best way to go. <laughs> mm, but it was every table, yeah, right? and everyone. So you go, oh. Yeah, <laughs> especially on a sequential index because you're mm -hmm. never going to need that space. <laughs> That's right. So I normally say to people, yeah, you you could remove page splits basically by setting a fill factor to say 50%, but now you've literally got to read twice as much data to get the same mm -hmm. amount of information. So, so yeah, I tend to like fill factor being like 
a hundred basically or zero the I haven't (laughs) touched it setting yeah 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 that's my default if I had to if you had to ask me for a default fill factor that'd be my default unless I had a reason to make it otherwise yeah no good so that's the first thing so we start with the idea that we're targeting the pages being pretty full Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other thing you're saying uh, in terms of scripts and things one thing that's always sort of amazed me a little bit is that all of the scripts I see tend to just look at the average level of fragmentation in the table, but they never look at how the table's used. And yes. that sort of fascinate has always fascinated me. I, I've always thought, you know, if you have a rule that says, hey, if it's 70% fragmented, go off and rebuild it or whatever. But, it, but I look and go, yeah, exactly what you're saying before, that if that table's only ever seeked, you know, it, yeah, it might still have a little bit of an impact, but nothing like if it's something where you're endlessly scanning it. Yep, that's absolutely true. And that's one of the things that I've I've definitely said to people when they've asked me for advice in this area, that looking at not only, uh, you know, how fragmented the index is, but how it's used is important for sure. Because we do have those, um, you know, index operational stats and, and index usage stats Correct. that'll kind of allow you to see how it's being used or if it's being used at all. Um, so that, and then also looking at like the page density and like mm. the other problem that you were talking about are how full are those pages in addition to, you know, how fragmented they are. All of those things, all of those pieces are inf- of information are important to determine, you know, whether you should rebuild the index at all. And if you should, how often you should do it. Mm. Yep. No, so yeah, it always surprised me that with the tools that they don't look at that. But then yeah. part of the problem, again, is the fact that the, they're transitive, that information in those DMVs. Yes, I mean, that's true. Um, so the, it's it's cumulative over time and then it gets reset um, whenever you restart. So when you query those views, uh, you know, it could be different depending on how long the server's been online. Mm. And then there were some versions of SQL. I don't remember when we fixed it, but there were some versions where an index rebuild would actually uh, clear those stats. Yeah. That that's that should no longer be an issue, but mm. you know, but that was a problem at one point. So yeah, that may be why one of the reasons why it hasn't been more more integrated into those smart scripts. Mm. Yeah, because I think people end up rebuilding indexes often much more than they need to, uh, even when they're proactive. And I suppose we should also talk about what's the downside of rebuilding indexes too often. Yeah, I mean, the downside is, uh, I mean, you're generating a lot of overhead on the system. Um, so, you know, you may be causing the application to run slower or be blocked. Um, you may be, you know, having, you may have to take full downtime depending on how your application works and whether mm. or not you're able to do online index rebuilds. Um, you know, it's a lot of overhead on the system that that may mm. not be necessary. The one, the one that I see quite a lot actually has uh, been the downstream effects. So if you have uh, in years ago, mirroring today, availability mm-hmm. groups, yep. that's all logged activity and that's all sort of going down the transaction logs. And I know uh, my wife was working in doing uh, sort of like online DBA support for a long time and their Monday mornings were full of things like uh, even with log shipping uh, that you know things had fallen over because they'd run out of space and uh, and things hadn't worked in their log shipping environments and invariably it was because they'd rebuilt everything over the weekend. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, it generates an enormous amount of log and it's a problem. Yeah, it can, I mean, a lot of customers find that their availability groups back up and, and they can't, they're in jeopardy of perhaps even violating SLAs because they get so far behind um, on their replicas because of index rebuilds. And, exactly. Yep. You know, my answer in the past had always been when they ask, how can I fix that problem? I'd be like, don't rebuild your indexes. Yeah, that's as right, often yeah. was the answer, mm. right? <laughs> so, so, yeah. okay. so in that case, yeah, we're definitely saying, so that can be a problem if mm -hmm. you do that too often, right? And too much of that, it can, can be a problem as well. Now, yeah. prior to the, uh, let's say, uh, newer options, for doing the rebuilds. We had <laughs> options where you could rebuild an index, but originally that took the table offline. And we had options to do that online if it was an enterprise edition of the product. Right. Um, and that's been changing over time. And the other option we had was uh, defragging the index. And so maybe if you just mention the difference in the two. Sure. So with the with the rebuild, with the rebuild that the traditional rebuild that's offline, we are rebuilding the entire index structure and we're taking locks in place on the object. And so it's those locks that are effectively taking the table offline. So so that's why it's not that the table's not there, it's just that we're locking it exclusively in order to rebuild the index and so you you're not going to be able to use it. So with the online index rebuild, then we create uh you know snapshots in TempDB to be able to do that to build like a side-by-side -side index structure online so that you can still access the base table. Doesn't make the operation any faster necessarily. In fact, it's a little bit more overhead to do those online um, rebuilds because we have to do things side by side, um, but it allows you to do it without with being able to access the underlying table. Now the defrag on the other hand is online because it's not locking the entire table. With the defrag we're looking at sections of the table at, at a time and um, and kind of moving things around to to bring that bring that particular section of the index into order. I, I always think of it as like a um, a puzzle, one of those slide puzzles I used to play with as a kid where there's like mm. one empty space and then you slide all the little pieces around to make the picture or put the numbers in order or whatever. That's yeah. kind of what we're doing. We're leveraging that empty space to be able to kind of move things around, you know, in a smaller section and then move on to the next. So the nice thing about the defrag was you could, you could kind of stop that and you would at least have whatever you'd done would be done. <laughs> yeah. So then and, you could pick and up so and that's important. Like, yeah. That's right. You could interrupt it. I think is probably the key thing there. Yeah. And so, so if I interrupted an index rebuild, what it would end up happening at the time was that would then undo the entire index rebuild that I had just been in the middle of doing. Where if I did some defrag work, I could interrupt that, and then I I still would keep what I had done effectively. It always sort of struck me as odd that there wasn't some time-related setting on defrag where you could say look just go and do half an hour's worth oh yes i know i know that um that would be a good thing i thought we did something like that <laughs> I, I remember i looked at it years ago and i was just going why isn't there some time on this you know because yeah and so the only thing you could do at the time is you could sort of have a thing that starts it but then you'd have to later go off and sort of pick up the the process that's doing it and go and nuke it and yeah and i always to... always think that feels like clumsy sort of code uh, doing that sort of thing but it was the closest thing we had 
to doing some sort of resumable operation uh, on yes. the indexes. Yep. Yep. That was the best thing you had. And the problem with the defrag is it, it wasn't complete. It wasn't rebuilding the whole index structure. So like it, it's taking care of the leaf level, but it's not doing anything in the intermediate levels of the index. So the rest of the tree structure. Um, and so even if you could do that resumable, like you said, it, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't, you know, getting rid of everything. Hmm. Actually, we should also mention too, I, I know uh, there's a strong misconception about how deep indexes get. Um, have you got, I just don't know off the top of your head, but have you got feelings on how, what sort of typical depths you see in large and small databases? Sure. Um, I mean, so SQL Server indexes, because of the way that they're built, are typically go wide rather than deep. Um, so you can have quite a very large index that is still uh, pretty shallow. So, you know, two or three levels, I think, is the most common. For very large tables that are not partitioned, you may start to see more, but they, they do tend to be much wider than they are deep. Yeah, that's it. I, I often see pictures and people are trying to demonstrate what an index like that looks like. And you see like 10 and 12 levels. And, and I always think that's, that's a strong misconception because yeah, yeah, most I... of the time it's nothing like that. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a 10 level. <laughs> I can't even imagine how big that would have to be. I mean, I, I, I suppose I could do some, I can't do math in my head, so I can't, I can't kind of <laughs> tell you, but I mean, yeah. you can have billion, billions of rows and, and still have, you know, a, a, a four or five level index. It really yeah, depends exactly. on the, the width of the row, right? Yeah, and look, that's another important thing too, is this, the size of the key which are the columns that are being indexed, uh, again, will greatly affect how bloated the index is and how quickly you'll fill it up anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to kind of, I feel like it's probably hard for people to visualize this without going into detail and, and showing you diagrams of how indexes are built. So if you're curious in that, it's definitely worth digging into the documentation and kind of seeing how they're built. And that might make it easier to understand, uh, you know, why they do go wide like that. But yeah, I mean, the, the key size is so important, whether or not the index is unique is important because the key actually gets wider if it's not unique, because we have to add things to make it unique. So, so there's so many different different things that uh, that go into, you know, how you choose your index key and how you build your indexes mm. that can influence how that, um, how that physical structure ends up being. So given that, so we've decided that sometimes it's worth rebuilding indexes, not all the time. <laughs> and we've decided that it can still have a positive impact. And but yes, we don't want to overdo it. And it can take a long time is the other problem. And so that then brings us to, well, wouldn't it be good if we could sort of interrupt it? Exactly. Wouldn't it be great? And also the problem that you mentioned of um, things like downstream, like availability groups, you know, how could we kind of resolve some of those issues that we see with, with that? And, th and that's where the resumable index operations comes into mm. play. So tell um, us the story on those. Yeah, so um, resumable index operations started in 2017. So in, in SQL Server 2017, we introduced um, the ability to do resumable index rebuilds. And mm -hmm. then, um, and that's also in Azure SQL Database as well. And then in SQL Server 2019 and in Azure SQL Database, uh, you can now create indexes uh, with resumable. 
And so resumable index operations um, are online operations. So, so it uses the same mechanism as an online index rebuild. The difference with <clears throat> the resumable operation is that rather than making the index rebuild one giant atomic operation or one transaction, we cut the operation down into smaller transactions um, and we persist the progress of that operation inside the database metadata itself. Mm -hmm. So this allows us to track the progress as the index operation is progressing. And we, of course, give you uh, DMVs and catalog views to be able to see how far along the index rebuild is and to see how much work has been done and um, to sort of estimate how much work is left. So we have, uh, you know, views for you to keep tabs on the operations that are running. And then if you want to then pause the index operation, you can do so, and then you can resume it later. So if you have maybe, um, uh, you know, a small maintenance window where you want to get a little bit of work done every day, you can do it that way. And the differences over the defrag option is you're not, I mean, you can just, it, you are going to, you know, end up with a full rebuild. You're just going to, you know, do that partially over time. Um, and the cool thing with this as well is um, if the server uh, restarts for some reason or if you have a failover, for example, with an availability group, um, after the failover, you can resume the index operation so you don't lose it all. Um, without this, um, if you were in the middle of rebuilding an index and you failed over, that's it. Everything would get rolled back. Yeah. Uh, which could even impact your failover times because it'll take a while to recover. Um, and so you'd have a situation where um, you take a, you might take a while to get back online and then you'd have to start over from scratch. So with this resumable operation after the failover, I can resume. And the more important thing is because I've been committing these transactions all along, um, I am able to, um, you know, I don't have as much to recover and I'm able to keep my log sizes smaller. So we mm. can truncate the log as the operation goes because everything's being committed, the progress is being tracked locally. Um, and so it can help with some of those things, like you said, with your, even with log shipping, where you end up starting to get these, these giant logs because I can't truncate the log <laughs> after yeah. the backups because of this long operation. So all those things kind of go away. So this can help with um, keeping your availability groups in sync. This can help, um, you know, keeping your log shipping clean. Anything you're doing that, that has an impact on the log um, might, uh, you know, have less overhead because of these uh, resumable operations. So there's a lot of great stuff with this technology beyond just the ability to pause and resume. Now, in terms of, uh, I suppose, online operations in the first place, uh, that is going to have an impact on the amount of resources you need server-wise. Yes. Um, so because we're doing this kind of side-by-side operation where we're, we're building another index uh, alongside the one that's existing, um, you are going to need a little bit of ex extra storage space for that. And you're going to see that during the operation, we're going to have to do dual path updates. Mm. So if you are updating rows in the base table, we will also need to update the, that secondary copy that's that's the, the index that's rebuilding, that needs to be updated. And with online index operations, you that was already happening. So if you're already yeah. rebuilding your indexes online, you had that. The difference here is if you pause the index operation, we still have to continue doing those dual path updates. We still need to update both the base table and the new index until you either abort or complete the index mm. rebuild. 
Hi, this is Greg. Just wanted to thank you for listening to this show and let you know that if you'd like to let me teach you more about SQL Server, we now have both free courses and low-cost courses available online and on demand. The courses include detailed hands-on lab work for you to complete to reinforce your learning, and there are more courses coming in the next few months. You'll find details at training.sqldownunder.com. So that's slightly different here, but if you're already doing online index rebuilds, you shouldn't really see that much more additional overhead. Yeah. What about um, the effect of how long you pause it for? Well, so you, the longer you pause it for, the longer that um, shadow copy is going to be hanging around. So you're, you're taking yeah. up that space, even that whole entire time. And then over time, now you could be updating rows that you've already <laughs> rebuilt. So, yeah. I mean, the, the, the existing work that's been done um, may need to be redone the longer mm. you have that pause. So, yeah, you definitely wouldn't want to necessarily, you know, pause it for a long period of time. Yeah. And so uh, I suppose that's the thing is I, I don't know that I'd want to see a pattern where somebody intentionally paused it over long periods of time. I, I think that would be uh, problematic <laughs> you know, in yeah. terms of that uh, resources wise. But yeah, it, it certainly seems really interesting. I like the idea of how it's sort of broken into chunks and sort of committed as it goes, that sort of thing, uh, which uh, you said sort of keeps the log size small. What about the overall duration of the operation though? Um, I, I, you mean as to whether this would make it take longer? Yeah. Uh, I, again, it should still be similar to an online index rebuild. Um, because, uh, you know, the, the overhead is pretty much the same. I don't think the committing of transactions is necessarily going to add, uh, that much overhead. Um, I, I mean, I suppose, I mean, just keeping the transaction log healthier, it might actually make your, make in some cases, the overhead less, as we said, for things like availability groups and such. But I don't know um, that overall it would have a, a dramatic impact on how long the whole operation would take, unless, of course, you, you do pause it several times. Yeah. No, that sounds great. And uh, you mentioned before about automated, uh, automatic failover in an availability group. Mm -hmm. And so something like that that causes it to effectively look like it's just failed that automatically pauses that operation and because it's yes. already got the where it's committed up to yes yes so if the database were to go offline or the or the server um were to restart or go offline then um that progress is persisted it's it's persisted as metadata inside the database itself and of course because with availability groups everything in the database is being replicated that metadata is being replicated so when you get over to the secondary in an availability group situation you can then just go ahead and, and resume on the other side mm. any idea how that impacts things like replication um i don't think it would have a direct impact on replication un un mm. unless you're talking about you know because the log health uh, should be better because we're committing those smaller transactions so yeah because replication is logical right you're you're replicating the logical data not the physical structure so mm. no i, I was thinking think more about the ddl replication you know where oh. mm, where that's getting sort of pushed down as well yeah where the actual oh, sorry i should so DDL, so like the actual create or index or the index uh, 
things like that, I suppose, if you're creating uh, one with resumable nature. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I'm not sure, like, like for example, like, I mean, would that not be replicated until the operation is completed? Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm yeah. not sure how that would work with that. Um because like any other DDL statements are actually prevented, which is actually a good probably a good point mm. to mention. You can't do any DDL operations on the table while the resumable index operation is um is live, even if it's yeah. paused, for example. So so most DDL operations would be prevented, but yeah, the actual creation of the index, that'd be interesting as to mm. Uh, you know, when that would get replicated. I, I can, um, that might be something that I could follow up on. And, and, and Yeah, I don't know. It's just, I, I, I wonder about the oddest things yeah. at times. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good, <laughs> that's a good example. Yeah, I still have, uh, I have quite a lot of customers actually using replication. I, um, it's, it's funny, I see people still think of it as like an older technology and and I don't know, it, in so many cases, it's still the right answer for yeah, you know, the things I, always, I use it for. Yeah, I always say that just because something's old doesn't mean it's not the right solution. Like you brought up log yeah. shipping. Like a lot of people are like, why would you use log shipping when you can use availability groups? I'm like, why would you use an availability group if your R if your RPO is like an hour and yep. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm like, why why would you bother? <laughs> and yeah, you like, need a readable secondary. Like what why not use log shipping? It's lightweight, it's easy to manage, it's simple. Yeah. Yeah, look, and the irony is that uh, with using Azure-based things, we're actually using replication more than we ever were before. And the, and I'll give you an example, the sort of thing that's going on, is that we'll have on-premises systems, and in our case lately we've been working a lot with uh, timber mills and things like that, mm -hmm. um, but they'll have on-premises databases and they have to be there. You know, it's these systems that are connected off to mill equipment and things like that. But mm -hmm. one of the beautiful things now is that I can set up a replica of tables that are of interest to me in Azure, directly in an Azure SQL database from that on-premises SQL Server database. Mm -hmm. and, and that just works beautifully. And yep. then the nice thing is that I can do my analytics, I can do all of those sort of things in Azure once it's there. And importantly, I can do it from a whole lot of mills and then centralize all that information for then doing BI work and things like that over the top of it. And uh, I've actually found it to be you know, really surprisingly good. And, and something like an availability group would, would just be so overkill for, for something sure. like that. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, data movement is a reality today. Uh, you know, whether it happens over replication or some other mechanism, it, it, it has to happen, especially with, you know, now we've got Azure SQL Database Edge. So we've yep. got IoT devices that are running SQL Server and, and, you know, they're generating the data and they can do some, you know, processing directly on the device itself. But kind of the end goal of that is to get that pre-processed data up into somewhere in Azure. So, mm. so yeah. So, I mean, there's always going to be that data movement and we are absolutely still focused on, you know, what are the best ways to get that done. And, you know, even though it may seem like replication is old school, it is still top of mind for us for sure yeah um, it's it's a, we've actually uh built we've got an online class on replication and when we built that i remember all the people saying to me why would you build that you know like uh and a lot of people take that class <laughs> right <And> so, so <laughs> yeah. the thing is like it's it's still happening you know a lot yeah. it's, uh, it's interesting it's like one of these uh i think there's been this perception in the past that it was that it was hard 
and it was uh, perhaps a bit painful to look after or whatever. But mm -hmm. I would say now it's actually the easiest that it's ever been. Uh, and I mean, yeah, there's still a few quirks and things and whatever, but, but sure. overall, <laughs> it, it's, it's one of the most reliable things I deal with. Yeah, oh, that's good. I mean, because, you know, when I was a DBA, I, I didn't like managing my replication <laughs> topology. So it's good to hear that it's better. I will pass that feedback along to our replication <laughs> Yeah, so that, that, and as I said, ironically, it's ended up working really, really well because yeah. one of the things I'm always trying to do is get people into platform services rather than having them you know, just with like managed instances or or having VMs in the cloud. And the beautiful thing with that is that I can have a standard SQL server on premises and I can have an Azure SQL database as a PaaS service as the, the subscriber in the replication. And that's just wonderful. Because um, yeah. what I see in so many organizations I go into today, they endlessly talk about making a cloud transformation Yet all I see them doing is re-hosting VMs in the cloud. And, yeah. and I look at that and think, you're not transforming anything. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's not a transformation. <laughs> no, it's, it's remarkable what, what goes on now. And I understand, look, for a lot of people, there is an issue where they have a, an issue with their existing infrastructure. Uh, they want to get rid of the infrastructure people. I don't know, you know, whatever it is. And there is, a, there is an argument for let's pick it up and, and move those VMs and stuff and be able to sort of logically manage them, be able to more logically scale them and so on. But you're still not making an actual transformation, you know, uh, mm -hmm. because even when they push it up, um, so I'll see people push up a SQL VM, but then you say, okay, well, what are you doing about high availability? What are you doing about yeah. all that stuff? And if you get the platform services, that stuff's already kind of done for you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we were just talking about resumable index operations. That's default behavior in Azure SQL database because, Correct. in fact, we developed this just because as, now that we're managing these services for our customers, we're starting to feel their pain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so we're actually fixing all these things that, that DBAs have had to deal with for years because now we're <laughs> the DBAs, right? Yeah, that's so. a wonderful analogy. Uh, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you. I mean, that's an accelerated database recovery came because of that mm -hmm. you know these resumable operations there's tons of stuff where we're like wow how did our customers manage this and I was like yeah. they stayed up late nights and went through <laughs> a lot of pain <laughs> oh, it's so good yeah it's I look at the uh, the standard stuff you get out of the box with a platform like a PaaS database it's amazing you know what what is there compared to what you would have to do yourself even if you were spinning it up in VMs and things yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the whole point is that we, um, you know, we do that hard stuff for you. And I know there were, uh, you know, there's a lot of DBAs who are kind of like resistant to the cloud because they're feeling like, you know, what's my role going to be once all these databases are in the cloud? Well, now you get to do the fun stuff. Like mm. now you get to tune queries and look at the application, like, like as the way we began our conversation and we're talking about how important it is to look at the application holistically and to, you know, look at how it operates with the database. You could spend your time doing that instead of backing things up and, you know, and, and exactly. you know, managing availability groups and all that. We do all that, you know, bread and butter stuff for you and you can actually focus on, you know, making real change in the business by looking at, at all that other stuff that mm. kind of gets pushed off. Well, I look at it from a business point of view too. And the thing is, look, in the end, all, all from a business point of view, you really want is you want 
a database over there that answers when you send T-SQL queries to it. You want to, you want to manage it on the basis of basically how big, how fast, where is it? You know, is there a copy in another place? All these things should be like ticking boxes, yep. not maintaining staff within your organization you know, who know how to make all of that stuff work. Yeah, um, and for exactly. so many people, they can't afford to keep uh, really, really skilled people like that um, in place. And there's so much of that that it just automatically does for you. Yeah, exactly. And it changes quickly over time. So hmm. for, for you to, um, you know, for you to be always on top of the best practices and the, the way to configure all this and the, the latest hardware and, and uh, you know, how should you tweak all these knobs and all that kind of stuff, like all of that changes over time. And, and you know, by allowing uh, Azure to manage that for you, you know, you don't have to necessarily no. spend all your time keeping on top of that. Yeah, there's still a role there. It's just, it's a different oh, role. And and the the other, I think, the other really important role in amongst there is the design of the database itself as mm -hmm. well. And so yes. getting people more involved in that. Now, if all your organization does is buy third-party applications and execute them, then that in itself is a problem, right? Um, and because yeah. you may have no control over how any of that's done. And uh, I must admit, it's one of the things I, I'm endlessly sad about is when I see the databases that are designed by third parties, <laughs> uh, application vendors. It's so terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I think it, I don't know where exactly where it comes from, but like I've seen places that don't even have any data people and do a half reasonable job of it. But some of the basic design I see, and, and this is a real hassle too, when we talk about performance tuning is that sometimes they're just, they've made such fundamental mistakes. And I find the organizations are often highly resistant to hearing about it as well. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely worked with some vendors that, that didn't want to hear it. They, they also sometimes are constrained by the, the fact that they're trying to do cross-platform support and they're yep. trying to do it cheaply. Like they don't want to write a separate code base for SQL Server and another one for Oracle and another one for MySQL. <laughs> they want it. Yeah, it's interesting. I, that's an interesting one too. I hear that all the time. Yet, how many vendors do you know really work across multiple platforms? Well, very few that do it successfully. <laughs> Correct, right? And so this is the thing. Yeah. So, so I, I see so many de-optimizations that occur in databases because people say we don't want to be tied into a particular platform. Mm -hmm. And then all they end up doing is running incredibly badly on every platform. On every platform, yes. And, okay. and they never end up changing anyway. Yeah. And, and so they do this to themselves <laughs> for a scenario that never happens. Yeah, because invariably, like I was at a, a customer a while back at an ISV, and they had like literally hundreds and hundreds of oh, four or five hundred devs, and they were building stuff all the time. But the layers in there in the code to deal with potentially multiple databases were quite messy. And, but the weird thing is then that everybody had always ended up bypassing it and adding SQL Server specific things anyway. <laughs> and so they ended up with this sort of weird hybrid um, mm. where they couldn't really move to another thing without major effort anyway. Uh, uh -huh. and, and then they were paying the pain of, you know, this sort of weird design 
uh, for most of the database. You know, it was, it was just the weirdest thing. And, oh, yeah. and just my experience is I hear people talk about moving between systems all the time, but I almost never see them do it. No, no, I, I, I would, I would agree. That's, it's definitely a lot of times it's, it's a whole lot of effort for not a lot of return. <laughs> hmm. Indeed. And, and as I said, they just end up running badly on every platform. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, if they ever did. Oh, that's awesome. Hey, listen, so, uh, so what's happening in your world now, Pam, coming up? Um, I, I, was, I would normally ask people if they'd see you at any events or things, but uh, <laughs> at the time we're recording this, we're right in the middle of the COVID-19 thing all happening. And so uh, I presume you're one of these don't come to the work uh, don't come to the office people at the moment. I, yeah, I am. So I'm at, I'm in Seattle and we've had quite an outbreak here. And so Microsoft has asked us all to, to work from home until uh, March 25th, which is about three weeks of working from home. So yeah. Um, and we had the MVP summit was just turned into an online only event. Yeah. Um, I think SQL bits is still on. You'll see some of my team at SQL bits. Um, I wasn't going to bits Anyway, so if bits still happens, yeah. <laughs> you'll, you'll see some of our team there. And then, yeah, my next thing was going to be SQL Intersection. So far, it's still on. Um, but, I, yeah, I mean, we're kind of going day by day mm. um, and seeing. And I, as far as I know, I'm also going to be, I don't know when your podcast is going to air, but I'm also going to be going up um, to Victoria for SQL Saturday Victoria yeah. um, in, in, uh, in Canada. Um, and even though the summit got converted to online on, it's my understanding they're still going to try to run that event. So uh, if nothing changes, I'll be there, uh, not this Saturday, but next Saturday. So yeah, they're, they're I don't know. Attempting we'll to run the MVP summit online. I, I think um, as a virtual thing, I think what will be a real challenge with that is that people mightn't realize, but there are product group interaction sessions, PGI sessions that run on a regular basis. Uh, with the MVPs and so on. And it'll be interesting to see where you convert it to a summit to virtual, how you avoid it just being like a whole lot of PGIs one after the other. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I mean, you know, for us, we, we're approaching the summit differently. So mm. some of the content we're going to present is probably different. I, I don't have anything because uh, what I was going to do was a focus group. And yeah that doesn't really translate well to the to the online format um mm. so i'll i'll actually probably just be scheduling a pgi um yeah. you know at some point instead um so yeah I, I mean i'm not sure how it will go we'll just have mm. to yeah have we'll to find out uh, unfortunately uh, the uh, team hasn't had a lot of lead time to work out how to uh, how to do <sighs> yes. it so yeah so it was yes. a sudden decision and uh, yeah. so seattle's a bit uh a bit ground zero at the moment. And uh, the uh, I was mentioning uh, to Pam before the, this call that uh, I have a Chinese teacher. I do Chinese three nights a week uh, for an hour. And uh, my teacher is in Wuhan. And uh, it's um, so she's absolutely ground zero for this. And it was sort of fascinating. She went home to her parents in Chongqing uh, for Chinese New Year, of course, and then wasn't able to get back into Wuhan at first. So wow. that was kind of weird. And then a couple of weeks ago, they let her back into Wuhan. And it's sort of weird. She's a primary school teacher. And 
of course, there's no school. And so they've told her now that at least she still gets paid. But uh, she said oh, that's uh, there's nothing sort of happening at least till the end of March, if not end of April. Um, but what was interesting the other night is that uh, we're in the middle of starting a class and she got this sort of knock on the door and it was her turn to go to the shop. Um, and so, and so oh. completely bizarre. So, so the thing is that they get a knock on the door about every four days or so that says you can now go to the shop, right? And like leave your place. Um, and so she had to sort of run off and go to the shop. And she said, it's like completely surreal because it's like living in this, uh, what's normally a bustling, incredibly busy city and going out and there's no one on the streets. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's post-apocalyptic sort of thing. And yeah, then she said, uh, of course, they don't normally crowd, they don't queue well at the shops. And the difference is now this like this perfect queue and everybody's <laughs> about a metre and a half to two metres apart. Oh, sure. Queue. And so you've got this sort of shop and you've got this empty streets and you've got this weird uh, queue that's snaking out from the shop. It's, uh, it, it's completely fascinating uh, listening to her. And, uh, and of course, I'm now learning really, really important language like wear mask. <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> All that sort of stuff. Yeah. Oh my great. gosh. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. not. It's not quite that uh, post-apocalyptic here in Seattle. Mm. I mean, for the most part, everybody's kind of going about their day. Um, this past weekend, there was a run on the stores, and I yeah. heard the lines at Costco were were crazy, and you know, everybody is sold out of of toilet paper and yep. water. That and, seems and to be the number one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, so. Uh, it's yeah, but still people are still going out to restaurants and uh, the traffic is much lighter, which is nice because <laughs> most yeah. people are working from home. But um, and we did just announce for Microsoft, which I think is so cool um, because I was wondering, I, I did go to campus yesterday because I had left some things at my desk mm. that I needed to get. Um, and I was like, is the cafeteria still open? Are they mm. still restocking like the kitchens and things like that? And and I, I think they're not going to need to do that because limited services, but Microsoft is going to continue to pay those workers, which is yeah, that's super great. important. Yeah, I was like, I was like, gosh, because there's so many people that support the campus that uh, you know could be out of work right now, mm. and thankfully. As you mentioned, your Chinese teacher is going to to still be paid. These folks will still be paid too, which is cool. Mm. Awesome. Hey, listen, yeah. so it was so wonderful getting to chat to you today, Pam, and uh, thanks for your info. Yeah, thanks, Greg. This was great. It was really good to talk to you again. Mm -hmm.